Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us today for another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein, and that tends to fit into the worlds of sports, of comedy, of music, of leadership, of books, pastors. And today, I'm really excited. We're having a guy that I would, I would imagine of most everybody I've ever had on my podcast, Terry Wardle's name has come up a lot. And uh, in my, my day job of connecting men to men and men to God in Springfield, Ohio, and even at my church at Fellowship and in the broader community, numerous people have told me how great the content and the man Terry is. He's up in Ashland, Ashland Theological Seminary and Grandpa's Cheese Barn is what I most think about when I think of Ashland. Love Grandpa's Cheese Barn. But anyway, Terry has joined us today. So welcome, Terry. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's such a joy. I, I've really been looking forward to this. I, I love any time to get together with another child of God and talk about the Lord. So thank you for this invitation. Mm-hmm. I'm humbled and excited. Well, myself as well. So I'm going to jump right out of the gate. And I'm fortunate that last night... I had a little bit of space between a couple things, and I live in a great part of Springfield where I can go take a walk a number of places, and I headed up to our local schools, the high school, middle school, and elementary school that's right by each other, not far from my house, and I listened to your latest podcast, and some of the first words out of your mouth were, I heard this sermon from a friend, Mike Parker, and I'm like, what? And I start messaging Mike. I'm like, I'm listening to Sling Stones, and Terry's mentioned you like right out of the gate. And he didn't know about that. And right away, that said to me, this is one teachable, every moment for him is a chance to learn kind of guy. Is that accurate? Uh, I, I would hope that's accurate. I have, I think the Lord has just given me this great insatiable hunger to be awake to him and to his movement and to his voice. And so... When I'm in conversations, when I'm walking outside, when I'm reading as I do every day or scripture, there's just inside of me this desire to learn something new, to let that then impact my own Christian walk. Uh, so I, I hope that's true. I hope people would say I'm teachable. Uh, by the way, that sermon by Mike Parker was outstanding, so I don't see how anybody could have missed that day. Well, and you you alluded to, and you you titled your podcast on Slingstones about this, about his presence exploded into the world. And you were really captured by that. It was a line Mike used in his sermon. And then here you talk about that in a podcast. Even elaborate on that. I mean, we don't need to do the whole podcast, obviously, but talk about why that impacted you the way it did. Well, I think Mike articulated the heart of the breathtaking gospel in such pristine terms. He went back and he he shared about the practices of the temple, particularly the issue that not everybody got into the place where they could experience the presence of God. 
And so there was only this representative awareness that the children of God had to the glory of God's presence and his intimacy. And then Jesus comes and Jesus goes to the cross. And at that very moment, God's presence explodes across the world so that all of us through Christ can experience an intimacy with God. And it, it, it just stirred my heart to remember that, my goodness gracious, we host the Holy Spirit at any time. We're able mm. to turn within and sense God's presence and feel God's presence. And there was a day when that was not true. And then Jesus came to make it true. And then we get to carry that out into the world. Come on. Wow. That's so powerful. So I alluded to a number of people in my world have, have gotten to know you and experience you. There's a church that did Identity Matters, which you were gracious and sent me a, a PDF copy of that online. I mean, I know a number of people have taken your teaching, healing, counseling opportunities up at Ashland and a number of pastors. I heard about you years ago from a woman named Linda Hyden, who was a great consultant and did a lot of cool things in Springfield for some of us nonprofit people. She has since retired. I was with a woman who goes to our church yesterday to golf outing. We were setting up shop to check out who hit part threes on the fly, on the drive, not many. And she was talking about having read Identity Matters. And do you see that happen much where who you are and your content really impacts a community that you've, have you ever been to Springfield? Uh, I've never spoken in Springfield. I've probably driven through Springfield, but that would be about the size of it. But you've had an impact in a city that you've never been in by numerous people who most of these people impact numerous people. And it's like, yeah, Terry Wardle has left a major impact and people are further along better disciples of Jesus Christ because of Terry. How does that hit you when you hear that? Well, it's, it's very humbling, and I'm sure you could understand when I say, in some ways, I don't even feel a part of that. I, I get to behold it. Mm. But I think it's all rooted in something the Lord spoke to me years, years ago. And it was just simply this, give it away. Mm. If what God has given me becomes centralized, and it's all about my ability to be places and touch people, then there's going to be a limited impact. But if I can begin to give that away, to have a decentralized ministry, to give it away by speaking to people of what they can do, that all of a sudden it will be that seed growing. Mm. Uh, and that's the essence of what I do. That's at the heart of Healing Care Ministries. I am far more excited. I mean, it, it's exponentially more exciting to me to hear of someone that I don't know that I've ever met carrying the message of identity in Christ mm. than it would be if I myself were there to speak that message. There is a joy in there that is hard for me to explain. And I'm just grateful, mm. absolutely grateful that God is using me uh, in whatever small way he, he chooses. So we're going to go off script here a minute. Let's let's talk about this. You talked before we got on air about no longer having a personal assistant and having to make time and space to grow the your your healing care ministries. I mean, it is a business as everything is. You can't make things work without finances and rate resources or whatever. So how do you manage the tension between giving it away and yet you've got to have a business model and sustainable thing to invest and bring in new people who will take this organization, ministry, counseling, practice, services beyond you. 
how do you work that out those two tensions well let's let's start with the fact that i think the lord he's still teaching me things i love to sit and contemplate new ideas i like to write i like to develop teachings i i, I really enjoy that i i sense the lord in that but for an organization to move on you have to have a list of core values and non-negotiables that you're willing to work that you believe will establish it for generations to come. And so early on, I began to develop, you know, a handful of core values. And one of them was the idea of investing in legacy. So that's what I've been doing for a number of years, uh, spending a lot of time investing in key people, uh, giving them opportunities, helping them grow, mentoring them embracing them as part of the healing care family and then being able to give pieces away. And so what you do is you, you, you find someone that has a set of gifts and I bring them alongside and they watch me do something. Then we begin to do it together. Then I watch them do it and then they're off doing it. And so that's what's happening right now. Healing care has become a significant ministry that has, if you will, a global presence. And in order for that to happen, it has to be decentralized. It cannot be something that I pull all the strings. And that is a commitment that I made a number of years ago. And so I'm thrilled. I, I, I just heard the other day that there are some things happening in Uruguay that I wasn't even aware of, of people that have come, they've gotten trained, they now have been mentored, and they're going back and doing it there. And I could list 15 or 20 other countries in which that's happening, and I've never been to one of them. Mm. But somebody I invested in, invested in somebody that planted a seed in somebody that then carried what we do into other communities. And to be honest with you, I think that's a fairly biblical model. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to someone if someone came to you and felt a calling and had some gifts and had some people around them to do something, not not the exact thing you're doing, but something um, in a way that could last and have sustainability and grow and develop and have right systems and processes in place? What would you say to someone about monetization? Because obviously you have to monetize. You can't do everything for free and have 25 people working for you and nobody's getting paid. What would you speak to a young entrepreneur who maybe has a heart for something in, in a realm like what you do? ministry world, nonprofit world, business or whatever, and they needed to monetize. What, what advice would you give them? Well, I'm going to share several things. And one of them is right at the heart of what I teach everyone that's part of our staff and our board is God will never punish us for generosity. Mm. So it isn't so much beginning with how do we convince people to give to us, but what is it that we give to others? And we start there. So, for example, in our organization, I felt led of the Lord early on that I've, I've given this organization my intellectual property. It's theirs. They then can go and they can build revenue off of that intellectual property. Uh, there's not a percentage of that that then comes back to me. Also, when we've had intellectual property, we look at opportunities. Right now, I always say to our folks, when someone from overseas that is making great sacrifices, is asking to use our materials, give it to them. Mm. 
you know, don't charge them. Folks here in the States, we have a little bit more uh, revenue that we can do it. And I think that's a very important principle. The other principle that I would share is uh, I think we go a long way if we learn to do friend raising rather than fundraising. Mm. How do we build relationships with people? How do we let them get the sense of who we are as individuals? I have found that when you do that, it isn't so much the fundraising strategy, but it's the fact that they've picked up your heart and your heart has become their heart. And all of a sudden, God begins to move in that sense of generosity. Another thing is that I, I believe that gimmicks and manipulation have no, mm. no room in, in the kingdom of God. It's got to be straightforward. We've got to talk about what the true need is. Uh, we've got to value. I believe people praying as much as giving. And many times I get a letter from someone and really they'll, they'll start with, we would like you to do one of two things, pray for us or give, but the whole letter is give. So they might as well have just said, yeah. just give to us. I think it's important for us to recognize there are spiritual dynamics that are going on here. We're dealing with a spiritual world and we need to work with spiritual principles. And one of those spiritual principles is that where I have been blessed, be a blessing. And then that begins to pour out into uh, the lives of others. Wow. That's, there's so much good there. There's so much I've been learning about fundraising that I feel, feel like you just uh, summed up well, that it's taken me years to learn. So there's a lot of good stuff you said right there. Terry, give us your, your three-minute testimony. How did you come to Jesus? What was God stirring in your heart? And then for you to finally say, yes, Jesus, you are Savior, you are Lord, you are King. I grew up in a, uh, a very low blue-collar family, didn't go to church a lot, pretty rough. Coal miners uh, ran their own wildcat mines. My grandfather and my dad was a coal miner and so forth. And in our little community, there was a youth group, and I started to attend this youth group, and it was a Christian youth group. And I think my reason for attending was, first, there were some guys I knew that went there, and there were also some young girls. And, of course, as a young teenager, that was of some interest. And I began to be exposed to the gospel in some amazing ways. And I would even say that a seed was planted, not only through their work, but also through uh, an event that I was drugged to when I was a young teenager. Dave Wilkerson had come mm. to Pittsburgh, and Dave Wilkerson and Catherine Kuhlman were sponsoring an event, and they brought Nikki Cruz and a bunch of other wow. folks. And I heard that, and at the end of it, I went forward and I received prayer actually from Catherine Kuhlman, and I felt something. But because of my context, because of the lack of, if you will, follow-up and discipleship, it was a homing device, but I went on to live as though Jesus wasn't a reality. And that went all the way through my college experience. But the last semester of my college, also because of the influence of some Christian friends in that institution, uh, I felt an emptiness that it was, it was profound emptiness at a time where, you know, I'm getting my degree, getting to launch off into a job. I was just empty. And uh, at that point, uh, actually at one o'clock in the morning, I went on a walk on a snowy night uh, to an apartment where I knew there were some Christian men and I, I knelt there and I, as you said, it was not just Jesus can save my sin. It was he, became the Lord of my life. And from there, it went to calling and seminary education and so forth. But 
uh, I, I would say the homing device was planted early and then God let me wander. Mm. But then the signal went off and his love called and it brought me home. Wow. So definitely a prodigal element in that last soundbite right there. Yes, absolutely. Does anybody not, have you met anybody that doesn't have that on some level? You don't have to go sin greatly, but whether you're little brother, older brother, whatever, everybody's got a prodigal side to him. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I think that's unquestionable. Part of that is the fact that while there is great newness that comes to us in Christ, Scripture would say we receive a, a new identity, a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. There's still a whole lot of leftover sewage, if you will, mm. and we 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 wander back into it. Yeah. We we go back, you know, into the mud. Now, the good news that I share with many parents that talk to me about a child that is strayed is that I am testimony of God's persistence to place a homing device in a child and that they may wander, but someday love will beckon. And when love beckons, we'll go home to the place of love. I, I would say, Jeff, one other piece on that, and that is, and it relates to the question of identity. I think the church needs to focus more on the power of transformation that occurs when someone turns toward Christ to where they have a brand new identity and that the core of who they are is a child of God with all the rights and privileges of being a child of God, whether they had a good day or a bad day. And that in some contexts, it seems to me that we are taught that you accept Jesus and you're born again, and then it's up to you to now learn how mm -hmm. to behave, to live the way God wants you to live. And the more you behave and the more you walk that path, then the more you are transformed. I believe Scripture tells us we're transformed from the very moment we accept Christ. We have all that we need for life and godliness. Now the key is how do we learn to live out of that? Have you read any Jerry Bridges material over the years? I have not. So he, you know, he wrote like Pursuit of Holiness and a number of other books. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Transforming Grace, I think it was called. And he, I think it was in The Pursuit of Holiness. He said, where we err a lot of times as followers of Jesus is we realize we can't do anything. We need his grace. We need Jesus to come in and invade our lives. That's the gospel. We do that. And then at some point, I always say it's about two years in. It feels like a newlywed stage. We kind of get disappointed or things maybe aren't going the way we thought. And we go back to doing what we did before we were a follower of Jesus. And we just go live our lives and kind of sprinkle a little Jesus on it and hope it's going to work. And that's, that's not the gospel. So Bridges says we need to teach ourselves the gospel every day. And I love that line, teach ourselves yeah. the gospel every day. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, that's a great line. What did you say the author's name is? Jerry Bridges. Yes, I've read some of his work, and I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think it boils down to also how one defines that very loaded word sanctification. Is sanctification the process of increasingly becoming something you now are not? Or is it the Holy Spirit in process, empowered process mm -hmm. of helping you live out of who you are? And I believe that's what it is, who you are. The gospel's breathtaking. I mean, absolutely breathtaking. And I think the model of Jesus at his baptism is right at the heart of this. Here's Jesus 
He hadn't done a thing. He numbers himself among the sinners. And God says to him, I love you. I choose you. Here's my power. I think that's a model for all of us. If the mediation of Christ is true, that he stands in on our behalf, which I believe it is true, then I think from our first day, before we know theology, before we know behavior, before everything's been cleansed, God would declare, I love you. I choose you. Here's my power. Now, walk with my people so they can help you learn to walk out of who you are, not help you become something you now are not. <laughs> There's a whole lot of preaching going on right now. I, I, I feel like you could fill you know, 10 weeks worth of sermon series in the content of what you're sharing there. Um, so much good, so much good. Um, let me ask you this, uh, Terry. I'm really you know, thinking through a guy like you doing what you do offering what you offer personally, content, podcast, books, healing center. Do you have, like if someone says in one sentence, speak to what your assignment is, what would that be? And I also would like you to talk a little bit about, I'm imagining you have some sort of a rule of life and, and retreats and getting away and being alone with Jesus for longer stretches of time, a la Mark 135 has to be a priority for you. So maybe hit on those three things. A one sentence like, here's who you are, here's what you do, uh, that would sum up all those things. Uh, do you have a rule of life? And what does retreating look like for you, Terry? Well, let me begin by stating that I made a commitment a long time ago to invest in four journeys. The journey to intimacy with God, the journey of transformation, the journey of connection and the journey out to touch other people. And from those four journeys, a long time ago, I developed a half a dozen non-negotiables. This is, this is it. I, I, I can't give ground in these areas. I had a breakdown 30 years ago because I gave ground. Mm. And that's out of that, I, I realized you've got to have non-negotiables in your life. The non-negotiable of time with God. I mean, time with God, not devotions. Devotions is a way you can spend time with God, but I mean, I want intimacy with God. And so that became a non-negotiable, hanging out with other Christians that I can get caught in their draft. Those are all very, very important things. But in terms of this latter part, I was deeply influenced by the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And part of the notion of doing the spiritual exercises, which I myself have been through the 19th annotation twice, is recognizing the importance of getting apart. It's like Mark uh, 631, come away with me to a desolate place, get some rest. I think we just need that. <laughs> when I was a young guy, just starting out in ministry, some older pastor said to me, now remember, you need a daily diversion, a weekly withdrawal, and an annual abandon with God. I'd never heard that. That's definitely not for me, but it was a perfect piece of advice that I didn't follow early on. But when you hit the wall hard, all of a sudden you realize if you're going to stay in this, you've got to rearrange the way you do life. The other factor is this, because of my own journey of some issues that I face in my own life, getting apart, getting quiet, 
spending time in prayer and meditation. It's just got to be a non-negotiable, mm. and it is. And that's part of the way that I do life. And so I, I, I try to say to everyone, your journey matters. Your journey matters. And there is just too much focus on skills and competency, you know, up here at the top, which would be the tip of the iceberg. But what's underneath is what sustains life. And so what is our journey to understanding identity? What is our journey in connection with other people? These are things that I think are foundational. And I had the opportunity for about 30 years to teach that to young seminarians. I heard you on with Nathan Foster, you referenced him earlier when he interviewed you on Renovoir and you used that phrase about the daily diversion, weekly withdrawal, annual abandon with God. It affirmed some of who I already am and what I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to live my life and model it as we connect men to men and men to God. But I thought, you know, there's no, there, in one sense, there's no formulas, but I'm like, if you live that out to be true, I just don't really see how you're going to fail. If you're honest before God, you have a thin space and you're committed to those type of, of rhythms, it, it just feels like you're going to do well. So you, you hit on something. You talked a lot there about your intimacy with God. Uh, a guy I know who's a pastor in London, Preston Yoder, uh, has spent some time in your teaching. And he, he used this uh, as a sentence about you. He said, there's something about your sense of intimacy with God, lamenting as a key to your life and living in a present moment as the only way to survive and thrive in ministry all sticks with him. That's what Preston Yoder said about you. Elaborate on that. Let, let me start with this issue. Um, Gordon Fee, the great uh, Pentecostal theologian, he said, the early people of God were known as people of the presence. Mm. There was a presence about them. What people feared was that presence, the enemies. They feared the presence of God, which was symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant. And then you become a Christian, and that presence now is part of us. And Paul goes so far to say, people when they're false gods go to temples in order to experience the power of the false god. They should just be able to come to you as a Christian in order to experience the presence of God. And so this notion of presence is very, very important to all of us but it's very important to me. It's a statement that apart from the presence of God, I have nothing to offer. I can give words and concepts, but words and concepts do not change lives. It's presence that changes life. Mm. And so this idea of sitting and waiting, letting the dew of his presence be manifest in our lives, I think is foundational to the Christian life. Now, one of the barriers to that, believe it or not, is ungrieved loss. Mm. That I, I have, I've, I've said this probably too many times, Jeff, but when I get into a room full of pastors, I can almost feel the ungrieved loss. They had had hopes, they'd had dreams. Uh, they've had great disappointments then, but, they haven't learned how or felt permission to grieve the loss, that it didn't turn out the way they hoped it would. They weren't received the way they planned on being received. Jeff, I have a little saying, and it's every loss in life demands 
an appropriate season of grieving, whether you've lost your favorite pen or you've lost your favorite person. And I believe this is part of what drives us to intimacy with God because we're being open with him and honest with him. We're saying what needs to be said. And in the midst of that contrite heart, we begin to experience the empathic love of God, which I think is absolutely critical. It was Eugene Peterson that wrote years ago that the church has done a psalmectomy. <laughs> and by that, he means we have taken the imprecatory psalms out of the church, the ability to grieve, to cry out. But it's in some times that the crying out that the pretense and the misunderstanding and the barrier that's between us and God comes up and out. And there in that raw moment, we are in this undefinable mystery of experiencing the attachment love of God. And I think that's very critical. I have gone so far to say, if, if I could only teach one thing, I would teach identity. If I could only minister one thing, I would minister lament. And that's a new thing today, don't you think? Lament, I mean, or it's a, it's a going back to maybe of old, because I, I feel like identity, we've been talking about that a while. That's that's the number one foundational thing I talk about within the gathering, that men have to understand who they are, what God's called us to, the mantle, the responsibilities he's given us. But lament feels like a very new, we're just scratching the surface of that. Do you agree with that? Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And it's for many reasons. One of them is that the community of Christ is not necessarily a safe place to lay out your heartache. Hmm. You can almost receive a certain degree of shame because don't you believe? Don't you have faith? As opposed to being able to say it in a safe context exactly the way it is inside. And, and Jeff, that's a key principle here is true lament is said in the language of emotion. Hmm. And often people want to rearrange what they're feeling to say it in a way that will not offend. That's not a lament. You read the laments, they, they just let whatever's in their heart out. And I think we need in this world to have a place to lament. Years ago, I had an opportunity to do some work with some Native American groups. And uh, one of the things that one of the Christian Native American leaders said to me was, white Christians often want us to throw the blanket of forgiveness over years of offense without us even saying ouch. Mm. There are a lot of people out there that need to say ouch. They've been hurt by other people. They've been hurt by the church. And yet we're told we have to play nice. We need a safe place to lament. The failure to grieve can lead to all kinds of problems, and scripture shows that. We have to have this ability to take what's inside of us and bring it up and out before the Lord. You know what you're saying, it really strikes a chord with me, and I hope you're familiar with this guy, Scott Sauls, who worked with Tim Keller for years, who's at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, um, has written several books, and he's talked more lately about, he has a new book out called Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. And he says, we need to spend more time going into the basements and quit going so much to the upper rooms where we think all the action is and where it's great and where it's lively. He talks about how, you know, the AA type groups or whatever, they meet in basements. We need more basement living. And it just feels like 
you're speaking to that at such a big time level that would echo and affirm everything he said. Let me ask you this, Terry. Have you read the book about Eugene Peterson that came out, I think, about two years ago called A Burning in My Bones by Wynn Collier? I have none. Oh, it is a great book. It is a pretty... Uh, I think he was the only person who was given full access to Eugene Peterson through his family. He knew a couple family members. He's now running the Eugene Peterson Center up at Western Seminary up in Holland, Michigan. What was really interesting about the book was it it covered a lot of things. And it got into some of the the challenges. Him with the church some, even in his marriage. I mean, there's a lot of obviously good things in there. But it, it was not afraid to tackle some some tough things he went through. One of the things Kyle Peters, who's gotten to know you some and had some access to some of your teaching, he he said this would be a great thing to know from you. He said, Terry has such, he's such a great communicator and has such a unique voice for the church. You know, his commitment to pursuing wholeness. I'd love to know what's a consistent obstacle you've had to deal with, Terry. Kind of reminds me a little bit of this Eugene Peterson book in trying to pursue wholeness. What's maybe been a continual or constant obstacle for you? Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me start by saying it would be very healthy if we defined wholeness. Please. And I think biblical wholeness looks very different than most people think. As a matter of fact, when I'm teaching on wholeness, I don't just use the word wholeness. I modify it. I call it cruciform wholeness. Mm. I, I, think, I believe Jesus died whole. And in that, I mean, there were just some key things we see. He He knew who he was before the Father. He never used power for personal gain. He cared about others. He believed that love would ultimately defeat darkness and hatred. You know, you go through that, that whole list, and there are several other things I would say about that. And so in my own life, I believe that the Lord has been leaning on the narrative arc of my life, pushing me toward wholeness all my life. And... If there is one obstacle, obviously we need to be participative. We need to be saying, yes, we need to surrender. But I think one obstacle is that the church doesn't seem to recognize the degree to which difficulty and loss is used by God in the pursuit of wholeness. We have what would be called a theology of glory, which is he's miraculous, he's wonderful, he's powerful, he answers prayer, great things happen, we celebrate, we praise, all that I believe. But there's another side to the equation, and that is uh, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James 1, that difficulty becomes one of the ways that the Lord forms us. And it seems to me that the guidebook to glory is well articulated in the community of Christ, particularly in communities that have a significant openness to the work of the Spirit. And I appreciate all that and say amen to it. But there should be a corollary. Mm. There needs to be a well-designed map to help people understand how to navigate Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James 1, when God chooses to use difficulty as a way to forge us. And so that to me becomes one of the great barriers in surrendering to God's work of making us whole. Hmm. The understanding of that. Eugene Peterson, since you mentioned him, talked about an involuntary ascesis in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant. Ascesis means 
if you will, a, a spiritual discipline, a time of spiritual forming. And he says there are times in life we go through an involuntary time, time of extremis, a time of difficulty. Uh, Henry Nowen called it a journey not of our own choosing. Mm. So back to the question, what gets in the way of the journey to wholeness? I think one thing is our misunderstanding of the place of difficulty in shaping us into the image of Christ. We love that scripture in Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things, but we don't really love it because all things means good things and bad things. And the next verse tells us for the purpose that we might experience being like Jesus or, if you will, experience cruciform wholeness. Mm. That that's where God is moving us toward. The day when we know who we are in Christ, when we don't use our power for personal gain, where we care about others, where we love in the face of hatred, where we don't pay back evil with evil. That to me is foundational to the very definition of wholeness. And it would appear to me that difficulty is part of the way God gets us there. How old are you, Terry, if, if I can ask? 70. Okay, and you're seven decades of living and following Jesus most of that. My belief would be that you probably have not seen a time when we have emphasized or care much at all about talking about living, death to self, taking up our cross, he must increase, we must decrease. It seems like that we're, we're pushing that out of the church in many ways. Not everybody, clearly. There's a lot of good gospel. But I'm like, if you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. Does it seem like we're at maybe an all-time low of that being talked about, wanting to be embraced, lived out in a church today? Uh, I, I do not think we have a well-articulated theology of the cross. I, I, I don't. I think we have a fairly well-defined guidebook for glory, and the theology of the cross is not articulated well. And there are probably reasons for that, but I think it's a disservice to the church. Look, you get this. I, I believe in the power of God and the miracles of God. But you can be in a church service where a person is giving praise to God's deliverance in some issue of their life, and there's another person sitting right over there who has prayed as hard, and they didn't get the answer. And we don't talk about it. We don't have a place for them. Mm. Romans 5 says that suffering has its place and that it actually forges a transformation and a hope. And Paul even says, and it's God's love being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We need to get back to understanding that. The mystics understood this. Mm. The mystics absolutely understood. One of the most famous quotes by St. Ignatius is, do not prefer. Do not prefer riches over poverty, health over sickness, victory over defeat, but prefer whatever it is that God is using to shape you mm. into the image of Christ. That's the true all things plan of God. And that's where I believe the theology of the cross comes to play. I know an increased interest or something that's gotten higher up on your radar that you're giving some time and attention to these days is race, racial reconciliation. How did that come about? What has happened? I mean, obviously, we know in the world there's been a lot going on the last few years, but what was the, the striking of the match to light that kind of on a fire for you? 
Well, it was my boyhood. Um, I, I was raised in an integrated neighborhood. I played sports on integrated teams. One of my very dear friends that was an African-American, his grandmother became, if you will, my first spiritual director. And so when I began to put together our ministry in healing care on reconciliation, I, I did a podcast and a, a presentation on the debt I owe. I have a debt mm. to communities of color wow. that, have, that have shaped my own spiritual life, my spiritual pilgrimage from childhood on into the many invitations I've had to minister in those contexts. And today I can name key people in communities of color that are speaking into my life that I'm close friends with. So it, yes, it's a biblical thing. It's, it's the picture, if you will, of the book of Revelation. How can we miss that? It's right there that, that every tribe, every tongue, but also, it's a very personal matter for me. I, I owe a debt. I owe a debt to the communities of color. And as a result, I want to weigh in. And therefore, we have, we have formed a part of our organization called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And we have an executive director, a wonderful man. And now we have a staff around that. And we're doing things, mosaic forums, training events, uh, presentations in order to get this conversation going. And the conversation really begins with this to me. There is not a single modifier in anywhere in the New Testament to the phrase child of God. Mm. It doesn't say white child of God, black child of God. It doesn't say rich, poor. It says child of God. How do you get to the table of the Lord? You're a child of God. And if you sit at the table of the Lord, you're going to see people of every race, every tribe, every ethnic group, every gender, every generation. And we as the community of Christ need to be committed to that. And I, I count it a rare privilege to plant a, a small seed on that. I have an opportunity coming up. I'm going to speak at an event in North Carolina, where it's going to be primarily African-American leaders and talk about their pain, talk about the healing power of Christ, and that ultimately we will never, ever be able to change behavior. We might modify it. We're not going to change behavior until we learn how to wash the inside of the cup. And only Jesus can do that. Wow. I love how you referenced there. You used the phrase, just it's your time opportunity. You, you, get, you get to weigh in on it. I thought that's such mm -hmm. a simple yet profound statement about you get to weigh in on racial reconciliation. Uh, if anybody's listening and is aware of the fact that I ditched the rapid five, I ditched the rapid five that I always have because this is too good. I'm not going down a change here. We're going to stay on the same pipeline. So I want to close with this, Terry. What in this, these days, right now, current fall 2022, what makes you joyful? What makes you sad? What makes you angry? And what makes you laugh? Let's start with joy. <laughs> when I write, when I do a podcast, when I maybe work on a book or a seminar, I feel fulfilled. But when I have the simple opportunity to say a kind word, mm. to be in a generous moment, that's what brings me joy. And I think that's what John 15 is about. John 15, you know, intimacy with God 
brings us a fruitfulness. And I think there's a great difference between being productive and being fruitful. Mm. And when I'm productive, I feel fulfilled. But when I'm fruitful, there's wow. joy. Amen. And this, this opportunity, this, this is joy. Obviously, other issues of grandchildren and wife, those are all there. What brings me sad? Is that the second mm -hmm. one? It makes me sad that we are not seeing one another. Mm. Truly seeing. Anthony DeMello once said that you cannot love someone if you don't see them. If you're loving someone before you see them, the love is self-serving. But once you see them, and so part of what makes me sad is we're not seeing one another. We're not seeing one another in our whole story, in our brokenness, in our needs, and in our hunger. What makes me angry is the co-opting of the message of Christ for political purposes. It, it angers me. Clark Pinnock once wrote that we are a colony of heaven, living in a perpetual Pentecost, participating in the mission of God to release that which is beautiful from that which is ugly. Mm. I think at times co-opting the gospel for political purposes mm. turns something beautiful into something that is ugly, and that makes me angry. What makes you laugh? My wife. <laughs> she has a great sense of humor and mm. just being with her. Uh, seeing the Holy Spirit fall upon people for the first time, I usually find myself laughing because wow. it, it's just wonderful to see that joy in their life. I think that that's one of the things that makes me laugh. Mm. Beautiful. Terry, how can people find out more about what's going on with you and get content and find out about where you are? Well, we have a website and it's called Healing Care Ministries. It has everything we do, which we have a lot of different ministries that we offer in training and counseling and intensive caregiving. If they go there or they go to the Healing Care Center website, which is a sub website off of that, they can find out a schedule of where I might be speaking. They can find out the books, the resources, all the other wonderful people that are part of what we're doing. And also, I have a little podcast. Slingstones. Slingstones. Folks could hear some about that. Amen. Terry, I can't thank you enough. I, I feel like my whatever my rhythm is supposed to be right in this moment, it is in a great spot. The Lord gave me a, a year or so ago a, a three-lensed look at things to look at something and say, is it good, is it true, and is it redemptive? This conversation mm. is good, true, and redemptive. So thank you for that. And man, I'm glad I'm glad I st stayed the course to try to get with you because this has been well worth the time. Jeff, thank you for your patience in, in uh, my response. It's been a joy. Yes. And may God continue to bless all that you're doing. Much blessings to you. Thanks for joining us today, Terry. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.